My name's Graham Newman. I'm the founder of Design School Asia. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading creative, science and technology industry experts how their practice is responding to change and how this change can foster cultural, economic and social benefit in Southeast Asia. This is Making and Doing. In this week's programme, we're looking at how practitioners in arts and crafts are responding to change. Arts and crafts are historically the most recognised of the creative industries in Thailand. It's also of relatively low economic value compared to the other industries they're connected to. This downward trend in value is likely to continue and arts and craft maker numbers are likely to shrink as a portion of the population in view of rapid urbanisation and the influx of low-cost lifestyle products from overseas. There is some good news. COVID-19 can potentially expand the country's arts and crafts business as more people are staying at home and they've shown interest in making using available raw materials and techniques. So on today's programme, we're going to look at how arts and craft makers in Bangkok are responding to the constraints of making in the new normal and how technology is being used to develop the domestic post-pandemic market by speaking to guests about what they would like to see change in an uncertain future for the craft industries in Thailand. A garment designer who has manufactured over 50,000 sartorial face masks and the directors of a creative studio who are using resograph technology in which traditional stencil printing principles and low-cost duplication are combined to produce works that have a handmade aesthetic. And we'll find out more about how they are helping young people redevelop their arts and craft skills making through personal expression using reso printing. Firstly, I'm joined by the garment designer and entrepreneur Dana Bluin, who is the founder of Supervillain Design Studio and Dapper Villains Menswear, whose collections include bags, neckerchiefs and accessories from their workshop in Bangkok. Dana, welcome to the programme. Tell us, what was the big idea that set you on this Supervillain Design Studio journey? Graham, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Supervillain Design Studio is, is kind of a concept we had. My wife and I also own Supervillain Media Group. The media thing that we do a lot of production stuff like that but we've both been in involved in craft her much longer than me many decades myself not quite as long but you know i'm very into the design aspect of men's wearing garment and being just a big dude in asia it's hard to find off the rack clothing and you know sometimes it's just fun to make your own stuff i've always been kind of a diy guy you know having a background in design thinking taking a lot of my process and thinking from my engineering life previously as a decade as a telecom engineer it sort of just was a natural fit to sort of also create this vertical of, as a design studio and we mostly stuck to like making garments I, I do some design thinking work with clients I do, do a little bit of graphic design poorly most of the time but all of that is just in support of being able to design products product and garment design is, is my primary thing as, as well as jibs and hers is really more craft focused embroidery crochet knit whereas mine is more sewing cutting design it's interesting you talk about your background as a telecom engineer. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about um, the process. And, and is there any process that you've applied from your background as a telecom engineer into iteration for developments of garments and working prototypes? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So being an engineer, obviously, one of the big things you learn is good design from a technical perspective. And so prototyping, iterating, that, that whole process 
process where you know design thinking kind of fits nicely going through this iterative process and so I always start out with a concept and then one of the good things about working with Jib is that she's very willing to challenge my ideas and help me push the envelope it's very very much a team effort in that regard and we do that for each other so I'll come up with a concept and I'll present it to her just like I'm pitching a business she'll look at it she'll, she'll critique it critique is such an important part of design right. of engineering that you know if you don't have that you're sort of just working blind anyway and so she'll give me a critique I'll go back to the drawing board I'll make iterations once we get out of that that initial phase of concept development we move into prototyping and like you've seen the, the workshop downstairs so we, we can actually just we can run through prototyping pretty quickly and, and start to build things up with like inexpensive fabrics or with inexpensive material yeah that's that's really interesting when when you when you're having that uh, critical discussion mm. with Jib are you originating your ideas on pencil and sketching or are you using any modeling software to help you with that iteration and that and that conversation that early phase is really low fidelity for us when we're building like that early when we're going through that concept it's really just pencil and paper I would like okay. to say pen and paper you know as an engineer we used to joke when you're really when you know your ideas you don't use pencil you can you can put it in pen people who do crosswords or sudoku they kind of have the same joke like when you're that confident you do it in pen but, yeah. but the reality is right it's always pencil uh, pencil and paper early but there are tools that we use prior to that like before I even have a sketch I always build design boards some people call them mood boards right I call yeah. them my, my design boards where I put my ideas out I get concept ideas other designs that I'm taking inspiration from I put those on the board along with color palette and also like inspirations from whatever I'm taking it from whether it be nature or, or sci-fi or whatever I try to get imagery that relates to the design that I want to create a lot of times with uh, colors I know like, we want to talk about masks but one of the things that we do quite a bit bags and hats and a lot of times there'll be things in nature that inspire the color palette or the type of fabric we want to find the color play we look for those types of ideas to sort of give us a foundation and then for me I go from that right into sketching okay and then jib critiques that sketch and then she'll go back and look at the inspiration look at that design board if she understands the correlation then I feel pretty good but if she she has issue getting a clear understanding or readability from the design board to the design then maybe there's something I didn't translate quite well or I want to go back and understand why her being completely blind to that process which is intentional yes. then goes in and she if she doesn't get the relationship then I know that I haven't quite got it right okay and then taking that a step further when you have a couple of working prototypes and, mm. and you're looking towards manufacturing mm. and are you doing any market testing or do you think that the DNA of the studio mm. um, is, is inherently informing the final outcome yeah, that's a good question so yeah, the DNA of the studio is a big part of the product. I'm not saying that we know exactly what the customer wants, what they need, but we're making stuff in very small runs for the most part. It didn't turn out that way with masks, but we're making stuff in very small runs specifically because we have an audience that resonates with what we do. We're able to be in a position where that's viable. However, when we are prototyping, we do have core customers or groups of people who we do test the product with and get feedback because ultimately, if you're just building it for yourself, you're really just building a one-off. I do want it to resonate with my core audience. And so when we build a bag, you know, we send it out to one or two people with that iteration, ask them to, to use it, to try to break it, to give us feedback. One of our design tenants is that we're building things to last, right? So you should buy it and be able to give it to your kids, your grandkids down the road. If someone can take it, break it, do whatever with it, or they, they feel that there's a weak point, we want to go back and redesign that or 
as I often joke with Jib, I want to re-engineer it, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's unbreakable. That's a part of the process. And I know people who don't talk to their customer. And it always drives me crazy to hear them say like, well, I'm designing for me. And if they don't like it, they don't like it. Well, I'm also designing for me, but I'm designing for me to be able to sell it to customers. Yes. You know, that's part of the business of it. Yes. Yes. You mentioned the masks and I'd like to talk about that now. Mm. You reacted very entrepreneurially to the pandemic at the start of the year, designing mm. and manufacturing the masks. Can you can you tell us about that journey? Originally, we weren't planning on making masks in mass. What happened was Jib and I were getting off the train one day and we had made masks for ourselves. We saw someone selling polyester fabric masks for like 300 baht and people were buying them because at this time, early in Bangkok, there was a shortage of masks, N95 surgical masks available. People were basically buying whatever they could. Obviously, this is Asia, so people wear masks generally anyway. So th- there were some in the market, but not great designs. Jib was also a scientist in a previous life, or she was a mm. researcher. We came home and we basically dove into the literature on fabric masks. And we we're lucky it was at a time that people were actually starting to put more information out there about fabric masks. The CDC had recommendations. The um, NHS had recommendations. WHO had recommendations on fabric masks. So we took their recommendations and some literature that was done by some very quick thinking researchers and scientists Mm -hmm. and academics on the effectiveness of these masks and looked at, okay, based on what we know, based on what's being recommended, what can we build with local materials that we know that we'll be able to source and create a cheap alternative better than, you know, the BS that we've seen being sold at the BTS stations for 300 baht, which isn't doing anything for anyone. The Thai Ministry of Health, along with the COVID response unit, issued their own recommendations on masks, fabric masks, what type of fabric to use, uh, how many layers. Mm. So taking that information along with the CDC, WHO, NHS, we came up with a couple of designs that fabric-wise, the amount of layers, the ability to add additional filters that we thought worked structurally. And then it came down to the fit and the aesthetic of it to make it one, be able to fit the most people possible and two, be able to look pleasant enough that someone's going to wear it out and not be afraid that they look like Bane or whatever. Yes, right, right. And you've sold over 50,000 now. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. And uh, you you ship to uh, all over the world. What what are are the key markets for shipping? US, Canada, Europe, Australia. We've sold masks in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand. Basically, we, we've done what we could just to keep the price as low as possible. Yeah. Originally, we were only planning to sell them in Thailand. I have a brand that I run through the design studio called Dapper Villains. My partner, Jay, was like, people need these. He's like, can we ramp up production? And I was like, well, when you say ramp up production, I was like, I can do like 40, 50 a week. Mm. It's not a design that was made for mass production, right? It's very complicated yeah. to make it because of the fit and some of the elements. So we ended ended up talking to some of the contractors that we work with that we outsource larger runs to and sort of train them on how to make the mask, how to cut it, how to sew it, the seam type, the different stitches that are required because it's not just a regular lock stitch. There's a couple bar tacks that are required, things like that. And once we got that figured out, it was like, all right, yeah, we can ramp up. Excellent. Excellent. So what is the future of Supervillain Design <laughs> Studio for you? So hopefully not masks. I'm grateful for the fact that, that we're able to get them out there. But at the same time, it's not a product that we made a ton of profit on and that was by design. We saw someone selling crappy polyester masks for 300 baht 
which is 10 US dollars at the BTS station in a time where people needed them, we were able to make a much more functional, much more stylized mask and sell it at half that price. Again, not a product we made a ton of money on, but it's a product that people needed, right? We yes. didn't want to be someone going out there selling masks at, at a huge profit margin because we knew people would buy it. We wanted to get things out there that we knew people needed and could afford. And yes. so to us, it was more important. And we gave away thousand plus masks as well locally in Thailand. Mm -hmm. And one of my clients, a good friend of mine is the CEO of a company called Globish in Thailand, language teaching company, EdTech. He bought masks for, I think, all of his employees. And then he paid me more to give away more masks. Yes. Yeah. He's like, Here, here's more cash. Give away as many masks as you can. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. We just, you know, took that and we just made as many as we could. And then we like, all right, let's match what he gave us and just give away more. Yeah. You know, that was just part of the process. But yeah, the future is hopefully back to bags. Our our bags are actually starting to ship now. Our EDC tote and our, our mag bag, which is uh, one that my partner's using to ship out magazines in as a demo. We've got a line of neckerchiefs that we're ready to ship out and uh, I'm doing some design work with other clients as well. I just designed a jean line and a shirt line with a client in the US. So we're moving forward, we're getting some momentum and hopefully just keep doing interesting, good design. Let's hope so too. And yeah. as we're looking towards Christmas and the holiday period, uh, hopefully there'll be opportunities uh, for, for people to, to purchase these garments. That, that would be very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Dana. Thanks for having me, Graham. Dana Blue, and thanks for joining us and you can find out more about supervillain design studios at svds.co and dappervillains.com The Resograph recently celebrated its 40th anniversary. Launched as an alternative to photocopying, it has found a space as a creative tool for artists, designers and illustrators to produce printed artefacts. To find out more about Reso printing and how it's being used by creatives in Bangkok, I talked to Witamon Niwotichai and Santi Tansuka, the team behind Witty Studio, the creative agency here using Reso technology. Witterman and Santi, thank you for joining us this morning. Witterman, I'd, I'd like to find out more about what's the big idea behind Witty Studio? I think I came across Riso Graph, you know. Many years ago, I bought one Riso book back from Sydney. And then I and Santi have the same interest, you know. We, we interest in my weird, you know, kind of creative discipline, illustration, photographies, you know, graphic designs, and then prints and publications. And and I think we want to find alternative space apart mm. from, from uni. And I think we saw it's where everything comes together. So we can have space, we can explore resource machines, and then we can be able to work in my discipline. Santi, I'd like to know a little bit more about the, the Resograph technology. I, I understand it celebrated its 40th birthday recently. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Resograph has kind of found this interesting space uh, with creatives. Yes, definitely. Uh, actually, the Riso Kagoku uh, company was actually founded after World War II, and they they were the first company to create emulsion ink. And Riso, the word Riso in Japanese, it means ideal. So, you know, the founder of the company really have this concept in mind when they found the, the company. They wanted to create something better to move the country forward after losing World War II. And then and, you know, in, in 1980s, they came up with this Riso machine, you 
know, actually the initial idea was to help offices and uh, school to reproduce a lot of uh, documents. But then, you know, because the Riso company, they they were experts in making ink. When when they start doing this, they already have uh, different ink colors. And and soon after, you know, from the subculture group, designers, illustrator, and people who want to make concert poster, they they found that this machine is quite affordable and also with different ink color, there's a potential to use it in a more creative way. And and mm. therefore, you know, in, in the last five to 10 years, you know, Riso has been celebrated all around the world. And also with the social media is help, you know, like on Instagram, people posted their work printed from Riso machine and it's been shared and people really appreciate the, the, the technology and also the outcome that came out of the machine. And so we've seen a lot of Riso on the rise in the last five to 10 years. Great. And there's, it's a very unique machine looking around the studio. That There's there's some um, wonderful pieces of work mm. that, that, that you've got here. Um, Whitman, you come from a print background yes. anyway. Can, can you tell us about the similarities and differences of using, for example, traditional screen print and what the Riso machine can do? I came from traditional printing background, right? And Riso offer type like textile quality, and then uh, I think the characters. It's the combinations of you know type of like traditional printing that you need to engage with type of like texture, right? And then physical, you know, type of like labor intensive task, you know, to be able to prepare your artwork, and then at the same time the quality of digital printing that can offer speed and qualities it's in affordable way right. so it's uh, reduced some some tasks that's been you know kind of like burn out yes. <laughs> yeah most of the people right because we have we have less time yeah to invest in in terms of you know kind of like the clean up or the studios and yeah we have less investment mm. to to begin to mm. start printing something okay. yeah for low budget and and what we really appreciate about the machine and the, the company is that they actually thought about it through you know all the way through from the ink that has been developed to be less toxic you know back uh they 10 years ago they used uh soy oil for the ink and now they use rice bran oil and so it's actually less toxic and we can use it in this you know uh, environment without having to worry about the health effect in the long term and also it's consumed you know a lot less energy than other process and so you know we, we really appreciate this aspect of the machine as well because yeah, I think it's kind of like obviously you know answer the technique and people preparing the files you know to print because in the old times you know when you want to do kind of like woodcut printing you need to carve the wooden sheets you know maybe you have to spend like two months to carve it but with resource you can you can send original drawing and then at the same time you can send the digital artwork that you work under kind of like Photoshop or AI or Procreate, you know. It's kind of like easy access, you know. So anyone could get into this technology yeah. relatively yeah, easy. We could take a file from, from a, you know, a standard uh, drawing tool right, right. Um, and we could come to Witty's studio and, right. and we, mm-hmm. we could we could look at look at um, how we could output this. Yeah. And then it's not kind of like man pool, you know, everything from the beginning to the end. So it's incorporated with machines. So it's 
kind of like easy to maintenance on the process. Mm. And and what surprises us is that mm. initially when we started the studio, we we thought that there l l be more of you know designers and illustrator and artists who come here to to print with us. But actually, we we found that there's also other people who hasn't heard of a uh, risograph at all who might have some interest, you know, in in a different aspect of it, whether environmental aspect of of the machine and the printing, but also some people who. Who've only just seen an image from Instagram, and they thought, "Oh, this technique is quite mm-hmm. interesting," and so, so they 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 came here, you know. So it's 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 been an interesting journey for for us to share with people what risograph is, whether through you know showing them around our studio, through hosting different workshops, and also through communicating and collaborating with artists or designer who may not be so familiar with the process and and. Help Help them understand the potential of these uh, mediums that can do, you know, a whole lot. Mm. If I was really interested in starting to to look at Risa Graf as a as an interesting creative output, I could come to Widdy Studio and, and you could help me output some work. I think most of the times people uh, we suggest people to send you know their the artwork right their original artwork and then we help them to understand how to separate colors and how to prepare from turn the original artwork in full colors into separations. Layers and I think the the social media contact channel has helped a lot mm-hmm. because uh, in our studio we don't operate every day. So you know, having this uh, platform that people can contact us, can talk to us, send their work, we can also share with them guidelines of how to prepare their their file and give yeah. them some. Example. We've been develop you know the kind of like digital guidelines to be able mm. to send it immediately. So it's the the prepare. Yeah, process of the artwork. Mm. It's it's quite complex, you know, yes. for the beginner. Yes. So yes. the requirement is, you know, you need to understand the, the printing process and how to prepare yes. know, the artwork. Yes. Yeah, we we link to help, and then this is a part of our service, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And in addition to that, I understand you you've been running a series of uh, Riso rookie workshops for people to uh, have some hands-on um, experience with Risograph with your. Back- Background in teaching um, has that proved uh, successful in terms of broadening uh, people's understanding of how we can use risograph? Yeah, I think uh, definitely. You know, we've we've run this workshop since the beginning of uh, our studio, and recently, just this month, you know, we changed it a little bit. We we introduce a new workshop called Sticky Riso, where you print out on on stickers, which is a format that you know young young people seems to be interested. In right now and last week workshop proven to be quite successful with the people. Mm-hmm. You know they get to make their own stickers and they can share it with other people. And I think young people appreciate this kind of old technology. It gives them a sense of you know nostalgia, but also it's something. Of like a keepsake where they can keep it, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. and access to it. We should also perhaps discuss the impact of the pandemic and looking at the economics of the creative industries in general in Thailand. Just from your perspective, where do you see the next six months of the creative industries in in Thailand? Do you think it's going to pick up? I can see the declinings of prints and publications, right? 
but uh, we can see the chance that the alternative printings, you know, high of like low budgets and then low quantities will, yeah, chide. Because people would like to to continue doing something that they need, you know, to, to lower the budgets. And then at the same time, they want to attract, you know, and then want to create something that people enjoy, you know, and please. I think Rizal can, can answer these questions. In, in the last few months, we've seen, you know, uh, a few of our new clients came in with the more of a commercial kind of job, mm. you know, printing business card, postcard, and stickers to help promote their their own business. And and I think more and more, you know, people are uh, going into that direction. Yeah. Mm. I think the culture also print as an art prints, uh, Kaya Blake move into prints as an everyday prints, you know. And I think there's, there's, there's a strong argument during a recession that there is often a boom in print and kind of low, low technology and DIY and creativity. Mm. I remain optimistic that there will be, uh, you know, irrespective of uh, the economic situation in Thailand, that there will be quite a, quite a strong emergence of young creative people perhaps looking at Riso technology and, and affordable ways of producing work regardless of where we're going to be in six months. I, I think that invariably happens. You, you can see it over the years. Would you would you agree with that point? Totally. Yeah. And then I think uh, for us to see the more demanding of kind of like creating independence, you know, projects, it's kind of like increasing. And then I think in the future, so we can perhaps, you know, have a better equipment and offer Kyoblik full service on the finishings for people who would like to create Kyoblik short runs of scenes and, you know, independent publication of prints. So the future, what, what is the future of Witchy Studio, Santi? I think we're looking to continue making this space an experimental space for us. You know, um, we're we're looking to try new things, to learn new things, and to share it with the community that we have here in in Bangkok. So right now we do kind of like printing service for customers, and then we do support you know artists and designer to produce the artworks, and then at the same time we do collaboration project with institute, you know universities, and you know kind of like a group of people. And I think in the future we will do more and more how we can you know introduce this alternative printing process for people to have as choice. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I look forward to more choice uh, as as you grow the company. Thank you both very very much for talking to me, uh, with Mother Santi. Thank you. Thank you. And you can find out more about Witchy Studio and the Riso Rookie Course on their Facebook page. That brings us to the end of today's show. Thanks to my guests for sharing their insights on how they are making change happen. To join our network of students, educators and practitioners helping make sense of what's happening right now as design evolves from making things to making things possible, go to designschool.asia. Making and Doing is produced by supervillain Dana Bluin. Join us at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Graham Newman, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.